Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. I want to start by asking you a question this morning, and uh, I don't know if this will work here, but Last week, I, I gave a message called, we're in a little short uh, series for Advent, which is preparing our hearts for the arrival of Jesus. And last week's message was God with us, and what the word Emmanuel really means to us in, in a practical sense, what it means that God in Christ is God with us. Today, I want to look at Christ as God from us. And obviously, he was not from us as if we are the, the source of who he is in his divinity. But here's the amazing thing. The fact that Jesus has a family tree at all is remarkable. And I want to ask you a question. How many of you are pretty familiar with your family tree? Would you raise your hand if you, just, you have a pretty good sense of your uh, genealogy? All right, so some of us have done some work at it. I think it's fascinating to know this. But probably... If my experience holds true, most of us cannot name our ancestors back past one or two generations. How many of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents' generation? Yeah, probably not. Most of us don't. And if my teenagers are any indication, people today don't really have much interest in history, even their own personal history. And so it's a little weird that we exist here but there's a real sense in which we feel like our lives just began with us, that we don't descend from somewhere, don't come from someplace. The fact that Jesus has a family tree is really encouraging to me because it, it reminds me that when God entered the human race, when he entered the world, he didn't just parachute down as someone unrecognizable to us in a form we could not understand, but he entered the world the way all of us had to enter the world. How many of you just, how many of you are cloned in a laboratory? Anyone just formed inside of like a, a machine? None of us. We all had to enter the hard way, the slow way, and we began as infants, as newborns, and had to go through the whole thing. And the fact that God chose to enter the world that way really is remarkable. We're not that interested in genealogies. Probably when you go through the, like January 1st is rolling around. So if you really, um, if you really messed up with this year's Bible reading plan, you got another chance in 2020 to get it right. 2020 feels like a, a big year to get lots of things right. Don't you agree? So if you really have a lot of um, perennial regrets, 2020 is probably the year to finally get some clarity and vision and live your life with focus and clarity. But if you screwed up, you got another chance to do it. But probably by the time you get to all the begats, all of the um, genealogies, you probably just mumble over all of those, right? I mean, especially when you get to parts of the Old Testament where whole chapters, hundreds of verses are just lists of names you can't pronounce. How many of you actually go to the trouble of reading every single one of those names when you're reading? Those are bonuses. You're like, awesome. I don't have to really read today. I just... And you're looking to see if there's maybe any plot narrative along the way. I remember somebody um, that was mentoring me early on um, gave me this rebuke. He said, you can't do that because those are real human beings who played a part in God's story and their names are worth reading aloud. 
Just like when a tragedy happens and people read the names of those who lost their lives out loud, that's meaningful. That name, at the very least, a whole human life lived, is worthy of reciting a name. And that humbled me. So I began to read the names pretty seriously. But the truth is, I don't find that much spiritual meaning in genealogies. But the truth is that if you look at the genealogy of Jesus very closely, God has embedded some things in there that reveal a lot to us about what he's like. Of all the four Gospels, and if you, if you study the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one is really different in its style and tone. Each one has a different kind of intended audience. And each one begins the story of Jesus, the man who was God in the flesh, who would change all of human history. As they tell the story, they each start the story differently. Mark is really good for the efficiency-oriented because he doesn't mess around with the childhood and all that. He cuts right to the chase. He gets right to it and begins with the, the ministry of John the Baptist followed by Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke is one of those guys who is a historian, and he gives a very detailed, very poetic retelling of the birth of Jesus and all the events surrounding it. John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, goes way back, and he starts with a philosophical, cosmic treatment of the eternal roots of Jesus. He was the word that was with God for all time. Matthew, however, is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew wants a gospel that speaks to his fellow Jews who were the people of God through the Old Covenant, and he wants them to meet Jesus and understand he is the fulfillment, the long-awaited Messiah. So as he begins his, he begins it in a way that probably I wouldn't have. He begins with a family tree. And it's such a dry and boring way to begin the story of Jesus for those of us who come from the West. How many of you got all excited about reading the Bible and started with Matthew 1? You're like, seriously? This is how it begins? What we see there is that Jesus had a family tree. He came from humanity. He didn't put on a meat suit, as it were. I I joked about that last night. But he didn't just put on a costume to look like one of us. He truly was one of us. I, I was reading a blog entry by a guy named Sam Guthrie, and he put it this way. Jesus came from those he came for. He came from those he came for. And like all of us, the family tree of Jesus has the good, the bad, and the ugly. How many of you have people in your line of descent that you kind of regret are in your line of descent? Don't raise your hands. I mean, we don't need to embarrass our ancestors, but some of us wrestle with that. We wrestle with the fact that we came from people that we're not terribly proud of. Some of us resent even the people group, the ethnicity from which we descended. I grew up in a in a neighborhood that looked nothing like me, and so I actually went through a period where I was a little confused, like, how come I'm the only one in my school who looks like this? Why does everyone else get to fit in, and I'm always the oddball? I got over it. Because I'm resilient like that, you know. But uh, there was a period where I'm like, seriously, it doesn't seem fair. And my kids have largely gone through the same cycle of curiosity and bitterness, maybe even. Of, like, why, are, why don't I look like all of my friends? So maybe you wrestle 
with your line of descent, your family tree, at some level or another, whether it's personal or even just ethnic, you don't know why you had to come from where you came from. And I want to just, I'm going to give a shorter message today. It's really one big point that I want to spell out. What do we learn about the heart and character of God by looking at the way that Jesus' genealogy is presented? In Jesus' day, genealogies function like personal resumes. When you recited who your father and his father and his father before him were, and you can trace that line all the way back to certain important people, you're demonstrating your bona fides. You're you're demonstrating that I am a true Jew. I am one of the good people. I descended from one of the good tribes. And so you're establishing and in a way shaping how people think about you. You're creating a narrative about you that shapes the way other people see you. It's very much the way social media functions today, right? I mean, most of us put only the highlight reel on our social media, right? Does anybody put on social media the cake that you try to bake that went flat? Nobody does that. We're really putting in the very best of our lives because we are carefully manicuring and shaping what the world sees and knows of us. Many of us are very private people. And that's not just because we're shy, but it's because we're trying very hard to manage the world's perception of us. And so when we fail, we're very quiet. When we succeed, we're kind of not as quiet. But overall, most of us spend a lot of energy cultivating the picture of us that the rest of the world gets to see. I know this is the case because when people come to me for counseling and they present themselves, I know that the language you're using in my office is not the same language being used at the house. Can we get real honest about that? The language at home is a little rougher than language at Pastor Dave's office, isn't it? Am I, am I, am I imagining things? Probably more um, rated R language gets dropped in the house especially when you're feeling very agitated and your strength of emotion makes it feel like that's justified. And so we don't always show our true selves to everyone, and that's probably for the best. But the genealogies of Jesus' day were designed to impress and to elevate a person's sense of status in the world around them. And so if you were a public figure, a very common practice was you would go back and and you would redact or edit your genealogy so that if there was somebody very unsavory in your family line, you would basically erase them from history. You would pretend they never existed. Wouldn't it be convenient to do that? I want to introduce you to this guy. Maybe you don't recognize him. How many of you know who that is? It's not Jimmy Stewart. How many of you guys know who that is? His name is William Patrick Hitler. He was the nephew of Adolf Hitler, and he was alive during World War II, during all the the nonsense, the horrible stuff that his uncle was doing, and he couldn't take it, so he moved to the United States, and he wrote a letter to the president for special permission to join the U.S. Navy and serve in the American military against his uncle and his forces. It's a very little-known piece of history, but it's true. And so he served in the U.S. Navy against his uncle, and even earned a Purple Heart during his distinguished service as a U.S. seaman. Later on, for very understandable reasons, he changed his last name to Stuart Houston. The first day he reported for duty at the Navy, 
the, officers, the, the officer who was bringing him in said, what's your name? He said, my name is William Hitler. And the guy just laughed because clearly he couldn't be serious. Now think about what it was like to serve in the U.S. military and Hitler was your last name. That's, that's probably the most exaggerated case I could come up with in recent history for a person in your family line which you really wish you could edit out and say, I don't come from them. But that's the crazy fact is you can't change who you come from. It's one of the few things in this life you have zero say about whatsoever. You popped out and this is you. This is your gender, your ethnicity, your physical features, your family of origin, your line of descent. You came from some people. And you didn't get a vote in which people you came from. Very typically, and we could probably skip past that. I'll just, uh, can we black out the screen for a sec? The public figures of Jesus' day carefully edited their genealogies so that it would only look like the all-stars played for their team. But what I find so remarkable about Jesus' genealogy, especially because Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews, is that he does absolutely nothing to hide the ugly parts of Jesus' genealogy. In fact, if you read it carefully, he seems to go out of his way to point out all the really janky stuff in there. Everybody, you're like, oh, why'd you have to even mention them? He goes and gives them special attention and expands a little bit on them. And you, you wonder why he's doing that. It, that's like William Patrick Hitler constantly walking around going, hey, guess who my uncle is? My uncle is Adolf Hitler. You would never expect him to do that, but that's what Matthew is doing with Jesus. Guess who Jesus descended from? And he doesn't hide any of it. Now, I don't want to sound like I am a misogynist when I say this, but I'm reflecting the culture of Jesus' day. It was common, it was in fact the standard that you don't include women in the genealogies. That's not because they didn't exist, but it was because it was a very heavily patriarchal society. Everything came down to the father's line of descent. And so women were almost never mentioned in a family tree. Really, it was hard to be a woman in those days. But what's interesting about Jesus' family tree is that four women are listed, and when you look at the four women who are listed, very interesting choices. In fact, he lists them all as mothers of or wives of someone. He, he, in some cases, he lists them by name, but so many of the women are not listed who could have been. The four women he specifically mentions by name are four women who are in some way associated with either sexual immorality or foreignness. Both things would have clearly disqualified you from being named in the public records of any prominent figure because they were embarrassments. They were things not to be included. When you look at one of them, first one is Tamar. She was an Aramean, a foreigner, who married two of Judah's sons. The first son she married was Ur, and he died because of a sin, and he fell under God's judgment. So she married his younger brother, Onan, who also died because he sinned against her and against his family and against God. And so she had struck out twice with sons from the same family, and she was going to face widowhood and childlessness. And in her culture, that put her way on the outside. And so she disguised herself as a prostitute, and she seduced Judah, her father-in-law, and became pregnant by him. 
and gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. And Jesus descends from Perez. Maybe some of you have a story similar to that in your family history. Maybe you don't, but if you did, that probably wouldn't be one of the stories you'd feature. And yet, strangely, Matthew lists both twins and the mother so that there's no mistaking for any Jew reading. Don't forget about this sordid chapter of our history. That the line of descent of the Messiah comes from incest. Rahab didn't just disguise herself as a prostitute. She was a prostitute. And she was a Canaanite foreign prostitute who was living in Jericho at the time that Israel conquered that city. Because of her bravery, the Jewish people who came through the spies were spared and their lives were saved. Ruth was a Moabite. And of all the foreign peoples you could have been, that was one of the bad ones. The Moabites were descended from Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters. He got both of his daughters pregnant, and the Moabites were the people group that resulted out of that terrible history. Ruth was a great woman, but her line of descent would have made her unmentionable. And then there was this verse. <laughs> Matthew 1, 6, the way it's written, cracks me up. David was the father of Solomon. So far, every Jew is getting blessed because those are two of the greatest dudes in our history. Like Michael Jordan played with Scottie Pippen. Ugh, the good old days when the Bulls were worth watching. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother used to be Uriah's wife. What a weird way. She doesn't even name her. He goes, she wasn't even really David's wife. She used to be Uriah's wife. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament carefully, but Uriah who was Bathsheba's husband, wasn't just some dude in the army. He was one of David's closest friend and most faithful fighting men. He had a group of 33 mighty men who were his inner crew, SEAL Team 6 of the army of David. And Uriah was one of his boys, the closest of his inner circle. And David killed him in order to be with his wife. It was one of the lowest points in David's history and in Israel's collective memory. It was one of the worst things a king of Israel could have done. And Bathsheba is listed in the genealogy of Jesus in such a way that that terrible chapter of David and Israel's history could not be just glossed over. When you write it this way, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, it's clear what Matthew's trying to say is, let's not pretend that Jesus' line of descent is full of squeaky clean people. He does nothing to hide the inclusion of these people in the family tree. Some of us really wrestle with who we came from. We feel in some ways trapped or limited by our line of descent. We feel like we were so defined, so marked by the brokenness of people from whom we came who couldn't do better in our lives, who are working out their own brokenness and sin and pain, and they caused us so much. We inherited so much garbage from some of the people upstream in our family tree. We're embarrassed by some of those people. I've talked to people quite often who say, my child was weird because we'd have these parent teacher kind of things. And I was always dreading those times when I would have to bring my parents into my world and let people see who I came from. I wasn't proud of them. I was really embarrassed by them. I was ashamed of them. And if that's part of your story, 
one of the great encouragements is, I love that God is so forthcoming about the line of descent that produced the Messiah. That there were some people in that line of descent who most people would never have mentioned. And he openly mentions them. And part of the reason I believe he says that is because there was nothing in their limitations or brokenness or societal outcastness. I don't know if that's a word, but they were social, moral, and racial outcasts. There were people most others would have edited out, and God proudly proclaims and lists their names because what he's saying is every family on the earth is like this. Every family on earth has great people and really flawed people. And the power of the gospel is that it doesn't matter who you come from because in Christ you experience a new birth. When it says you are born again, there is profound significance on many levels to that statement. And when you're born again, that means your line of descent is reset and God himself becomes your father. And you are no longer bound by the shame of those parts of your line of descent which you wish you could edit out. There is no shame, no regret, no brokenness in your history which the gospel and the saving work of God cannot overcome. Do you remember last week when I was talking about the incarnation that when God became flesh, one of the things he did was he redeemed the very idea of what flesh can be. You know how in all of life, dirtiness flows one way. When you touch a dirty thing, the clean thing becomes dirty, doesn't it? So the, the example is if you step on dog poop with your clean shoe, does your shoe become dirty or does that, that poop become clean? How does it usually work? No one says, oh good, I stepped in the poop with my clean shoe. I've redeemed the poop. You have actually ruined your shoe. That's the way dirt works. Uncleanness works that way in our world. But when Jesus became human, it went the other way. Because only God touches the dirty and his clean rubs off on the dirty. Only God does that. Everything else gets dirty by contact with the dirty. Only God makes clean what is dirty when he comes in contact with it. That's miraculous to me. And what God did by coming into the world through a broken family, through a family tree just like all of ours, is he is redeeming things like personal histories, lines of descent, broken families, imperfect parents who made a mess of their lives and then made a mess of their kids' lives and allowed those kids to inherit a world of pain and hurt that they spent much of their lives overcoming. And the question is, if this is reality for us, where is the hope? And God says, I'm going to enter the world through exactly such a family to show you that there is no inherent limitation in your line of descent when God then in Christ can become your father. We've mentioned the women because they were especially people who wouldn't have been included. But it isn't as if the men who are listed in that family tree are exactly stellar either. If I tried to go through the examples of each of the men who are messed up in this family tree, I'd have to turn the sermon into a series. It is just one long list of really bad people. In fact, we have in Jesus' family tree men who are guilty of murder, incest, deceit, polygamy, and idolatry, and that's just the all-stars. I'm just talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon. Those are the good guys on that list, and they were guilty of all those things. 
Enlisted among them are prophets and kings. But even among those guys, there were so many bad kings who didn't get edited out of that list. I'm thinking of Rehoboam and Abijah and Jehoram and Ahaz, Manasseh, Amon, Jeconiah, who was also known as Jehoiachin, who Andrew Peterson in his song pointed out was a liar. I love that none of that is hidden from us. That Jesus descended from men who were not just imperfect, they were the worst of our species. And you might not think much of it, but let me bring it to modern days. Think about that political leader which you find most reprehensible. That public figure which you just find it hard to even look at their photograph. When you see it, you get triggered, you just hate them, you're repulsed by them. And I want you to imagine what it's like to find out that your Savior, your Messiah, traces his lineage back to that person. Can you think of that public figure who you find so reprehensible, you can't even think about their name without getting triggered? And find out that the Son of God enters the world through that family. How would you feel about that? Because I actually did a little thought experiment, because there's, there's a person I'm thinking of right now, um, and maybe some of you have a person in mind you're thinking of, maybe half of this room is thinking of the same person, I don't know. But it would be hard to get past that branch in the family tree. I'm like, oh, I was okay until that name. Really? God's going to enter our race through that person. Why would you do that? Why would you enter our world through some of the worst people? People who abuse their authority and power, who are so flawed, who cause so much pain in the lives of so many people. Why would he come to our reality through people like that. In part, it was because he was showing us that no human being would ever take credit for what he was going to do. We couldn't say, of course, Jesus saved the world. He came from perfect people. He could never say that because he came from the worst of us and still saved all of us. And in part, it was because he was redeeming the frailty of the human race that he came from. He's saying that there is not a family in all of history that is free from this kind of shame, this kind of regret, and this kind of brokenness and sin. And yet because of him, every family could rewrite its story. Every family could reset its line of descent. Some of us have tangibly experienced that in our lifetime. Our family of origin was a very painful place. But our family of marriage has become a very different place. We've chosen for the generation to come to do things differently than the generation that came before. And we're already seeing powerfully the fruit of that because Jesus made the difference for us. Our kids may have a very different testimony than the testimony we had because Jesus began to change the way that we decided to approach our lives. And that kind of true transformation of the heart is possible because in Christ, our line of descent completely gets reset. So you don't have to be shameful or hidden about your line of descent because that is not what defines who you are and who you can become. 
When Jesus entered the world through a broken and dysfunctional family, he was telling us that every one of us can find hope in him because his power is greater than the power of all those people who came before us in their imperfection. I especially love that he mentions those women because he doesn't just mention them to be provocative, but because even though those women were associated with things that the Jews found shameful, there were also women who endured tremendous loss in their lives and were fighters and found a way to survive in a world that wasn't built for them. I find consistently that Jesus and his people were countercultural in the way that they addressed and honored and empowered women throughout the New Testament. They were very countercultural in what they taught and how they addressed things. Even in the places where you really feel a little pushed by what some of the things they're saying, those men overall stood for a very empowering stance on women in their society that was revolutionary compared to the prevailing culture of their day. And I find that at every point that is possible, God wants to change our defeatedness and our sense of limitation in our birth and in this fate that we feel we're assigned to. Why was I born this? Some of us are really um, resenting the gender that we were born into or the ethnicity or maybe the physical attributes. All my life I've had a Napoleon complex. I resented being born short. I feel like a very tall man in my spirit trapped in the short man's body. And it's very frustrating for me. I, my kids always joke because when we take a family picture, I'm always standing on my tiptoes to try to look taller than my son. I'm shamelessly doing it. I know what I'm doing. I know how ridiculous it looks. I don't care because I got serious issues about that. And somewhere deep in our spirits, we all probably have some kind of wrestling match with, God, why, is this, why does this have to be my fate? Why can't I change the circumstances of my birth? what he says is all of that is a part of your story that doesn't need to be rejected or hidden or forgotten. Because in Christ, you begin a new story as well. And none of that stuff which you thought limited you has to define what your life becomes. Just because your parents made a mess of you doesn't mean you're going to end up making a mess of your kids. It's not, it's not hereditary like black hair or curls or freckles. The arrival of Jesus into the human story isn't just a universal human story of God crashing into our race, but it's a very personal story of God crashing into your story, your personal life story, and saying that even out of the ugliness of your own family line. He can produce something truly beautiful. One of the barriers to really knowing and trusting someone is when you feel like they're overly managing your perception of them, their image of you. It puts a a real barrier between you and a person you're trying to get to know when you feel like they're controlling what they show of themselves. Do you agree? Have you known people like that? You're trying to get to know them, and they're constantly working the image. And you're like, show me you, like the real you, because you're so busy cultivating a public image. And I know lots of people like that. But to really know someone, you need to see the full story. 
There's got to be a transparency, an authenticity. We insist on it in others, but we got to confront the fact that there's such a temptation to not be authentic, not be transparent with our own stories, because there's a lot of stuff in our story we're ashamed of. And what Jesus, in his full disclosure, is trying to tell us is, we're not pretending that the bad is good, but that the bad is covered by the good of God. That there's nothing in the brokenness of your history that seals your fate, that dooms you, that locks you in. Nothing. You are not what other people who came before you have told you you would be. You are more, you can be more than your worst choices and your greatest regrets. But that can't happen just because you want it to. It only happens when, like he did on Christmas, Jesus comes crashing into your life story in some personal, meaningful way. Where he's not just a public figure anymore, but he's the one who enters your story of pain and regret and shame and triggers a new rebirth and resets your line of descent. So that from that point on, you are not just passing on what you received from your ancestors, but you're passing on what you're receiving from your heavenly father. I think it's the only way human beings can recover from the great losses and tragedies of human life, of premature death, of divorce, of sickness and pain, abandonment, there's so many things that happen in human families that create a permanent crack in our collective memory. It damages us. It feels impossible to move on and recover. But Jesus says, you don't have to pretend those things didn't happen. You need to know that when he arrived, he brought with him real hope through Jesus. We are born one more time. One more time. You get to start again. It's the most beautiful language, I think, in the whole New Testament. My first birth told me what I thought I was limited to. My new birth tells me who I can be. That new birth is more powerful than the first birth. I don't know if this is something you wrestle with. <clears throat> but we all have some stuff in our family tree. It's pretty regrettable. I was thinking about my own family tree. And I'm not going to give you details. I mean, there's a point at which self-disclosure from the pulpit has to be limited. But there's some stuff in my own family tree I'm not really proud of. And I wonder if I go back beyond the two generations I'm aware of, if I'll find even more dirt. But I also know this, that Jesus has made a huge difference in my life and in my family. And what my children will inherit from the family they grew up in is not just human brokenness, but the transforming power of God's saving work. 
That's also part of their legacy. That's very life-giving. It's very hope-giving. I want to invite you to bow with me and just reflect on your own history. Maybe begin with those places where, if you're honest, you've resented some of the circumstances of your own birth. Your gender, your ethnicity, your physical features, the ancestors from which you came. And maybe for a long time, you felt really limited by the people that you came from. Maybe you were really damaged because they were damaged and they damaged you. And it's hard to hear words like hope because that felt so powerful, so determining of who you would be in this world. Without Jesus, that is exactly what we would be. We would be what others in so many ways have shaped us to be. We would be but the products of our family tree, the last branch on a mangled limb. Isn't it so meaningful that one of the phrases Jesus uses to describe salvation is you will be born again. Everything about you that determines who you are, your DNA, your origins, your potential is reset through your Heavenly Father. And if you've made a mess of your own life because you're defeated, you thought, I can't be more than this, then hear the good news. Yes, you can absolutely be more than your line of descent. You can be much more. So I'm going to give you a moment to just listen for what God may want to say to you at a very personal level. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.